0: Hey, it's Guy here, and today on the show, we're going to explore the power of art, how it can provoke the strongest emotions, or how it can transform entire neighborhoods, and even how it can help us re-examine our history. This episode is called How Art Changes Us, and it originally aired in November of 2017. This is the TED Radio Hour. Guy Raz. And not too long ago, painter and sculptor Titus Kafar was visiting the Natural History Museum in New York with his kids.
3: That's right. Two kids, two boys.
0: And how old are they? Uh, Savian is 10 and Davin is 8. So Titus and his boys were walking up to the museum and right at the entrance there's this famous sculpture of Teddy Roosevelt. It's
3: this towering, larger-than-life bronze sculpture that sits on this six-foot-tall pedestal. And Teddy Roosevelt sits on the horse, boldly controlling the animal with one arm. He's proud and sitting straight up and charging forward, it seems, And then on either side of him are an African-American and a Native American. I've walked past that sculpture. I've been in that museum as more times I can count. But when we're walking up, my oldest son sees that sculpture of Teddy Roosevelt. And without skipping a beat, my son says how come he gets to ride while they have to walk and it stopped me in my tracks there was
0: so much history that we would have to go through to try to explain that titus Kafar picks up the story from the ted stage that's a question that i probably would have never really
3: asked but fundamentally what he was saying was that doesn't look fair and Why is this thing that's so not fair sitting outside of such an amazing institution? And this question got me wondering, is there a way for us to amend our public sculptures? Not erase them, but is there a way to amend them?
0: And the reason Titus uses the word amend is because he doesn't want us to forget our past, but to confront it. He wants us to take a hard look at all of the paintings and sculptures and monuments that glorify a difficult and complicated history.
3: It's a very painful history. And we have to find ways to address it. We can't pretend like not talking about it is going to work. We tried that. Um, We have to create a space for conversation. Something has to be done.
0: So today on the show, ideas about how art has the power to evoke a feeling or shift consciousness, start a difficult conversation, even influence a debate about our past and present and future. As for Titus, he's been wrestling with these questions for years, ever since he was an art student back in the late 1990s. One of the last art history classes I will not forget was one of those
3: survey art history classes. Anybody ever have one of those survey art history classes where they try to teach you the entire history of art? I'm talking about cave paintings and Jackson Pollock, like just crunched together all in the same. It doesn't really work, but they try anyway. Well, at the beginning of the semester, I looked at the book, and in this 400-page book was about a 14-page section that was on Black people in painting. Now, this was a crammed-in section that had representations of Black people in painting and Black people who painted. It it was poorly curated. (laughs) Let's, let's, Let's just put it that way. Nonetheless, I was really excited about it. Because in all the other classes that I had, we didn't even have that conversation. So imagine my surprise. On the day that we're supposed to go over that particular chapter, my professor announces, we're going to skip this chapter today because we do not have time to go through it. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm sorry, hold on, professor, professor, I'm sorry. This is a really important chapter to me. Are we going to go over it at any point? Titus, we don't have time for this. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Please, I really need to understand it. Clearly, the author thinks that this is significant. Why are we skipping over this? Titus, I do not have time for this. I went to her office hours. I ended up getting kicked out of her office. I went to the dean. The dean finally told me, I can't force her to teach anything. And I knew in that moment, if I wanted to understand this history, if I wanted to understand the roles
0: of those folks who had to walk, I was probably going to have to figure that out myself. So at this point, what did you start to notice about this history, about how Africans and African Americans were being portrayed in in art?
3: By and large, the representation of black people and the history of Western painting is enslaved, in servitude, or impoverished. Hmm. They are often pushed to the corners of the compositions. They're hidden. They are in the shadows. And so what we have are these representations of black people that don't reflect their humanity.
0: And you're thinking, we're not talking about this. This is not, this is like not something we're even acknowledging.
3: I mean, absolutely. I mean, by that time, I had already fallen in love with the making of of paintings. And so my particular interest was trying to teach myself how to represent black skin and when i see those paintings these are the characters that i feel first i i know where they're hidden i know how they're hidden
0: and, and so in in your art the work you do you you sort of bring these characters out of hiding right exactly sometimes
3: there's an image that I will find in a history book. And I will remake that painting. And once I've represented, re-presented the original painting, then I attempt to insert a narrative that pulls uh, a hidden figure more to the foreground, more to the surface. Above you right here on the slide is a painting by Franz Halls. This is one of the kinds of images that was in that chapter. I taught myself how to paint
0: by going to museums and looking at images like this. Can you, Titus, can you describe the Fr- Franz Halls painting, what it looks like?
3: It's, it's a very prototypical European portrait of an aristocratic, very wealthy, family. You have this expansive landscape in the background, you have a little dog off to the side. We see that the father figure in the painting is at the, the highest point in the composition. And then in the background, there's this little black child. I want to show you something. I made this. You'll see there are some slight differences
0: in the painting. And I should mention uh, here, Titus, that what, what you're doing at this point in your talk is you're unveiling uh, on the stage your own recreation of that same Franz Hals painting. That's right. There's more written about dogs in art history
3: than there are about this other character here. I can find out more about the lace that the woman is wearing in this painting than I can about this character here about his dreams, about his hopes, about what he wanted out of life. All this art history helped me to realize that painting is a visual language where everything in the painting is meaningful, is important, it's coded. But sometimes, because of the compositional hierarchy, it's hard to see other things.
0: All right, so let me let me just break in because at this point in your talk, the the brushstrokes, which is which is what we're hearing in the background, you are actually painting over the images of the other family members, the white family members, and what you know what looks like white paint. And so the only figure that's left uh, on the canvas is that little black child uh, that Franz Hals had meant to fade into the background. That's
3: right. <laughs> that's I mean that's that's absolutely right. And the original painting, this black figure, is is so under focused hmm. that it is difficult to see him as individual, to see him as a person. So in many cases in the paintings that I make like this, I take brush to canvas and try to bring alive what I see and try to illuminate what I think the original painter didn't see. And so I am connected to this this black figure who was in the shadows and I had the exciting opportunity and privilege to sort of pull him out.
0: But at the same time, and and this is important to uh, point out because I, I I was lucky enough to be there and see this, you're not just whitewashing these other figures. You're not actually erasing them, right?
3: Exactly. And so the paint that I'm applying, this white paint with extra amounts of linseed oil in it, extra amount of Damar varnish in it, um, will, in fact, become more translucent over time. And so those figures will always be set back a little bit, but they will not disappear, they will not be erased. I don't want you to think that this is about eradication. It's not. We can't erase this history. It's real. We have to know it. What I'm trying to do, what I'm trying to show you, is how to shift your gaze just slightly, just momentarily. I'm trying to answer that question that my son had. Why do some have to walk? What is the impact of these kinds of sculptures at museums of these kinds of paintings on some of our most vulnerable in society, seeing these kinds of depictions of themselves all the time. I want to make paintings, sculptures that are honest, that wrestle with the struggles of our past, but speak to the diversity and the advances of our present. And we can't do that. By taking an eraser and getting rid of stuff, that's just not going to work. I think that we should do it in the same way the American Constitution works. When we have a situation where we want to change a law in the American Constitution, we don't erase the other one. Alongside that is an amendment, something that says, this is where we were, but this is where we are right now. I figure if we can do that, then that will help us understand a little bit
0: about where we're going. In a moment, Titus Kafar on how we can amend our public sculptures and national monuments. I'm Guy Ross, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to LinkedIn Jobs. Hiring isn't as simple as putting an ad in the paper or posting to a job board. Over 600 million members visit LinkedIn. And LinkedIn makes sure your job gets in front of people with the right skills who can change your business. It's no wonder a new hire is made every eight seconds on LinkedIn. With LinkedIn jobs, you can pay what you want, and the first $50 is on them. Post a job today at linkedin.com slash radio Terms and conditions apply. Thanks also to Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Imagine how it feels to have an award-winning team of mortgage experts make the home buying process smoother for you. With a history of industry-leading online lending technology, Rocket Mortgage is changing the game. Visit rocketmortgage.com slash ideas.
1: Jessica? Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org number 3030. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Push button, get mortgage. I can't believe that summer is basically over. I know. And you know what that means. The 2020 presidential race is only going to heat up. It's a good thing we spent all summer sitting down with the Democratic candidates for president. Hello. It is great to be with you. Oh, thanks for having me.
4: I'm delighted to be here. My pleasure. Appreciate it.
1: Check out the NPR Politics podcast feed for exclusive interviews with all the candidates on the debate stage. Subscribe. (laughs) Okay. (laughs)
0: It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, how art can change us. And for artist Titus Kaphar, art has the power to help us reconcile where we've been and where we want to go. So, Titus, you know, you point out that art can shape perceptions and, and reinforce even the most insidious and, and destructive views. Uh, and of course, right now, there's a lot of debate, heated debate happening about public monuments in the US. And some people, you know, want to keep them and others think they're inappropriate and racist and and want to tear them down. Um, And I'm, I'm just curious, like, what do you think about this?
3: If the question is binary, keep it or tear it down, tear it down. But the question doesn't have to be binary. I think if we engage a new generation of contemporary artists to make new monuments that stand next to these old monuments and force those old monuments into a dialogue, I think we have an opportunity to create a new civic space around these monuments that can actually help us move towards the resolution of these years, these generations of racism that those old sculptures represent.
0: Because, I mean, you're, in your artwork, you, you deliberately aren't trying to erase history. I mean, that, that is the core of what you do.
3: You know, you, you change the name of the street, right? And then it goes from whatever Klan's member's name it was, and then you put Martin Luther King Drive on there. I don't ever want it to be forgotten that someone got away with that, with using that name, hmm. this symbol of racism, placard on our streets, placard on our squares, artwork, sculptures, monuments. I don't want us to forget that. We have to ask ourselves, how did that happen? How was it that someone said, I want to make a monument to this Confederate soldier in this area, which is surrounded by people that this man fought to suppress? My concern is that can be an easy cop out. Yeah. We can just change the name and pretend like that decision was never made and no one actually has to take responsibility. But if the thing stands there and the contemporary artist comes in and makes another piece that is just unbelievably poignant and it sits boldly next to this older sculpture, then all of a sudden that oppressive visual voice that that object has on the people who walk by gets silenced. And it gets silenced without
0: having to tear it down. I mean, do, do you really think that art has the power to move the dial, like, like move the needle in a, in a really significant way?
3: I do. I do. I mean, I have this dream of this new WPA where we begin to put art in squares again and murals on walls and buildings and things. And in that, it would create a space for conversation. It's not going to solve the problem. But it does say in a very strong, in a very bold way that we are moving towards... Acknowledging this as a nation and saying, look, this does not reflect our national values. This does not reflect our constitution. And we are trying to acknowledge that. We are trying to repair that. And we are trying to move forward.
0: That's artist Titus Kafar. You can see his talk and the final version of the painting Titus started on the TED stage by going to ted.npr.org. So, can you tell me about the, the how the favela painting project started? Like, did you guys just go to Rio and you know to to sort of check them out?
5: No, it was actually different. Um, Jeroen, he had won
0: a competition to make a documentary for MTV. This is Dre Urhan. and Dre, along with his friend and fellow artist Jeroen Kulhas, who he just mentioned, made that documentary. It was about Brazilian hip hop music in the favelas of Rio. But their time in Brazil led to another art project, something completely different. I mean, when we were making the documentary and
5: we were just spending a lot of time with the people, there was this constant return of this word image, that people in society around the slums, they had this certain image of what the favela was like and what the people from the favela were like. And we were also thinking, like, could we also make some sort of a statement? And a visual statement was the thing that came to mind immediately, like, could we just make something that looks nice so that if people look at the place and they already know that they're going to dislike it, and all of a sudden they're confronted with something beautiful?
0: And that would kind of change their minds. And so the idea they came up with was to create a giant mural spread across many, many buildings, so that you would have to look at it from a distance to see the entire thing. And they decided to stay in Brazil and give it a shot.
5: I think our roles change a lot when we travel. Like, we sometimes we arrive somewhere as a documentary maker and we leave as a
0: socially responsible painter. Here's Dre and Yarun on the TED stage.
4: We picked three houses in the center of the community, and we start here. We made a few designs... And everybody liked this design of a boy flying a kite the best. So we started painting, and the first thing we did was to paint everything blue. And we thought that looked already pretty good. But they hated it. The people who lived there really hated it. They said, what did you do? You painted our house in exactly the same color as the police station. In a favela, that is not a good thing. Also the same color as the prison cell. So we quickly went ahead and we painted the boy. But still, it wasn't good because the little kids started coming up to us and they said, you know, there's a boy flying a kite, but where is this kite? We said, it's it's art. You know, you have to imagine the kite. (laughs) And they said, no, 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 we want to see the kite. So we quickly installed a kite way up high on the hill so that you could see the boy flying the kite and you could actually see a kite. So the local news started writing about it, which was great. And then even Guardian wrote about it. Notorious slum becomes open-air gallery.
0: I mean, the perception of favelas is is that these are unwelcoming, dangerous, ugly places. And part of what you were trying to do was to to change that perception by actually sort of overlaying this beautiful piece of artwork over the favela. It was almost forcing people to think about it in a different way.
5: Totally. It's totally an invitation to... To think about the people that live there in a different way and uh, I remember very well that um, the the participants in our project I mean we work with like big groups of people that are from the neighborhood so it's not just us but um, there was a piece written in the newspaper and uh, they talked about the inhabitants as uh, artists and not as criminals and That was like a game-changer for them. They said, look, they're writing about us as people. Hmm. I think that really got to us. And again, this wasn't really like a super predetermined plan. This is something that we stumbled upon. Like this happened, and then we thought, oh my God, if this happened on a small scale, let's build it out. Let's make it 10 times bigger and see if it happens again.
0: So that's what Dre and Jeroen did. They went to another favela in Rio and started on another large-scale art project. The second
5: painting we made was actually not on a wall, but it was on a complete street. And we painted this giant river of like Japanese koi carp. It was quite insane. It's like the most unexpected thing. And then they moved on to another neighborhood. The Santa Marta project was uh, quite simple. At the end, it just looks like a very simple, happy explosion of colors. That's all I can, uh, can describe it. And it goes over
0: like 27 different houses. And as art projects attracted more attention, they started to get requests from all over the world. Yeah, it's for the last 10 years,
5: we've been just running around painting. So then we received an uh, unexpected phone call from the Philadelphia Mural Arts Programme. And um, they had this question if this would actually work in North Philly, which is one of the poorest neighborhoods in the United States. So uh, we immediately said yes. The project took almost two years to complete. And we made individual designs for every single house on the avenue that we painted. And we made these designs together with the local store owners, the building owners, and um, a team of about a dozen young men and women. They were hired, and then they were trained as painters. And together they transformed their own neighborhood, the whole street into a giant patchwork of color.
0: It's amazing when you see images of it from above, like a drone image or from far away. I mean, I don't know what it looked like before, but you can imagine that it did have a pretty big impact on that neighborhood, on that community. Yeah, totally. And I'm I'm I love to follow
5: um like my Instagram is mostly people from um From the different projects where we worked and lived and I'm following a lot of the people that live in Philadelphia and it's great to see that um, the painting still has like a big impact on their images like the pictures that they take or music videos that they make there's uh, people that do dance shows in front of them or uh, clothing designers come out and do their fashion shows there and it just becomes like a thing like their neighborhood is the colorful neighborhood
0: Do you think that we sometimes when we we think about transforming neighborhoods or communities or doing big public projects, we don't just consider something as simple as beauty, right? Like beauty can really transform, psychologically transform how people think about their own spaces and places.
5: I think that there's two qualities. It's beauty and it's attention. If you do a a two-year project, you show two-year worth of full-time love and dedication to a neighborhood and its people and it's something that people take very very serious Um, a good example was when we arrived we we put posters everywhere and we flyered and we had people going door to door asking the merchants to come together for a meeting and it was only three people that came out like there's always these three people right and um, we did the same thing after the project was done and we needed to change like the venue because it couldn't hold all the people and everybody came together and I mean I'm not saying that it changed the world but I mean that shows something.
0: Dre Urhan you can find out more about Dre and Jeroen's projects at their website favelapainting.com and you can watch their talk at ted.com. What are you doing in New York?
6: Actually, I came to meet some people for, like, a, a future project that's going to happen in 2018. But it's still secret. I cannot talk about it. Oh, come on, Robert. Just a let, Let's make it happen, and then we'll talk about it.
0: This is El Cid. He's a French-born artist whose parents immigrated from Tunisia. And his work is actually a little like Dre Urhan's. El Cid paints these larger-than-life murals in poor neighborhoods all around the world.
6: But there's an important difference. I use Arabic calligraphy as my main medium.
0: Arabic calligraphy, it's an art form that goes back centuries. And it basically transforms letters from the Arabic alphabet into all kinds of designs. And el sees his work as a way to change how people relate to the Arabic language and culture.
6: I'm trying, you know, with my work to be an ambassador of, uh, of my culture, trying to show the beauty of it, trying to show how... Open minded, we are. So, art can be used as a way to bring light into a community, into an idea, into like a subject that sometimes people are like uh, scared I don't know, like just don't give importance. They think it's not important to talk about.
0: And Elsie chooses specific quotes that reflect the places he's
6: painting. I try with my work, with the message that I write, to to create a connection. You know, so for example, in Egypt, it was a quote from a Bishop from the 3rd century, originally from Alexandria in Egypt. And the quote, for example, was saying uh, anyone wants to see the sunlight clearly need to wipe his eyes first.
0: In London, he used a quote from John Locke. In Brazil, a quote from a Brazilian poet. And in his parents' hometown in Tunisia, he painted the side of a minaret with a verse from the Quran. LC told that story on the TED stage. In
6: 2012, when I painted the minaret of Jara Mosque in my hometown of Gabès in south of Tunisia, I never thought that a graffiti would bring so much attention to a city. At the beginning, I was just looking for a wall in my hometown, and it happened that the minaret was built in '94, and for 18 years those 57 meters of concrete stayed grey. When I met the imam for the first time and I told him what I wanted to do, he was like, "Thank God, you finally came." And he told me that for years, he was waiting for somebody to do something on it. In every work that I create, I write messages with my style of calligraphy, a mix of calligraphy and graffiti. I use quotes or poetry. For the minaret, I thought that the most relevant message to be put on a mosque should come from Quran. So I picked this verse, O humankind, we have created you from a male and a female, and made you people and tribe, so you may know each other. It was a universal call for peace, tolerance, and acceptance coming from the side that we don't usually portray in a good way in the media. I was amazed to see how the local community reacted to the painting and how it made them proud to see the minaret getting so much attention from international press all around the world. For the Imam, it was not just a painting, it was really deeper than that. He hoped that this minaret would become a monument for the city and attract people to this forgotten place of Tunisia. The universality of the message, the political context of Tunisia at this time, and the fact that I was writing Quran in a graffiti way were not insignificant. It reunited the communities. Bringing people, culture, generation together through Arabic calligraphy is what I do. Writing messages is the essence of my artwork. You don't need to know the meaning to feel the peace. I think that Arabic script touches your soul before it reaches your eyes. There is a beauty in it that you don't need to translate. Arabic scripts speak to anyone, I believe, to you, to you, to you, to anybody. And then when you get the meaning, you feel connected to it. I always make sure to write messages that are relevant to the place where I'm painting, but messages that have a universal dimension, so anybody around the world can connect to it.
0: I imagine that uh, when people see one of your murals, like this this amazing uh, Arabic calligraphy on this huge minaret, I'm, I mean, I'm sure people are, are at first just struck by the size and the beauty of it, but but then they probably walk away, you know, thinking about the Arabic language differently, thinking about it as art.
6: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I hope you will do this. If you can do more, it's even better. You know, I remember there was a... We did a project in 2013 that, that was called Last Walls, which was um, like a road trip all around Tunisia and uh, and going into places that has history, but people forgot about it. So I was like, let me go and dig into this history. Hmm. So we went, and I remember there was this small wall in the city called Qasar Haddad, and I asked people sitting in a cafe who this wall belongs to, and the guy said, it's mine, you can paint on it, go ahead. And so I was painting, I, w- I was... I've done I would say and there is a a young man with like an older man who came like screaming at me telling me what are you doing Uh, who told you to paint on this wall do you think I'm dead for you to paint on my wall and I'm like yeah like uh, uncle like uh, sorry I mean I didn't know that was your wall somebody from the cafe told me it belongs to him he said no this is my wall and you cannot do this you need to erase that so I was like okay I will do it but please can you just let me finish and I will just paint over it he's like okay do it it's okay And uh, two hours after I was almost done and he sent his nephew back and his nephew was like actually my uncle liked the piece and asked you to keep it. (laughs) So I don't know, sometimes like just a piece of art can just change the mind of somebody. Yeah. And I think that's the purpose of what I do. Like, You bring people that come from different parts of the world, different social class, different religious or political beliefs and you put them in the same place and you know, you just blur all those differences and what comes out as humanity.
0: Artist El Seed, you can hear his talk and see some of his amazing images at ted.npr.org. On the show today, ideas about how art changes us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR.
3: Support for this podcast and the following message come from the Walton Family Foundation, where opportunity takes root. More information is available at waltonfamilyfoundation.org.
6: When you think of country music, you probably have a particular image in mind. But as you can imagine, the history is way more complicated.
2: This week on Throughline, we sit down with filmmaker Ken Burns to talk about his new documentary about the
0: origins of country music.
6: Throughline from NPR, the podcast where we go back in time
0: to understand the present. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about the subtle power of art to transform the way each of us sees the world.
1: I say something similar to that. I always say, like, art won't solve world hunger or war, but it can provoke people to critically think, hopefully. This is
0: Magda Sayeg. She's a textile artist, and she basically invented yarn bombing.
1: It's like any street art, but instead of um, a spray can, I picked up knitting. Magda essentially
0: covers random objects on the street In yarn, it's kind of like knitting a sweater for a stop sign or a street pole or fire hydrants.
1: I've done 30-foot statues. I've done um, stairwells. I've done columns that span uh, seven stories that are 100 inches in circumference. Hmm. A a hundred trees in front of the Capitol. Some of my biggest projects are definitely the bus in Mexico City that happened in 2007. A whole bus, an entire bus. Yeah, and what was interesting about that is that um, at the time it was considered the largest object to be covered in knitting. And then from that point on, I just wanted to go bigger or weirder or do hundreds of small things. So, you know, I couldn't stop after that. It feels
0: like like in the middle of the night, like, magical elves came and and just knitted all this cool stuff everywhere. I've seen it. And I think these elves came in the middle of the night and made this happen.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, you do do it incognito. Uh, No one gave you permission to do this. So you kind of have to do it without getting caught. Now, granted, people with knitting don't usually look like they're threatening (laughs) in any way. And it's not really caustic or people don't really consider it vandalism, but it's, you know, it's going on other people's property or city property, and putting your knitting on it. So
0: how, uh, how how did how did you start doing this? Like how did it start?
1: I was barely thirty, and uh, I was sitting in my shop. I had a clothing shop back then, and I uh, it was a cold winter day, and it was very gray, and I personally wanted to see something handmade and colorful and something that m- put a smile on my face and made me happy. And so I knitted the door handle, and it was a very selfish pursuit. I didn't care what other people thought. I wanted this. But little did I know that people that would pass by my shop were also sort of intrigued and affected by it, and they would walk in and ask me about it, and I really did not realize that it would have this kind of effect on other people.
0: Here's Magda sayeg on the TED stage.
1: So clearly the reaction was interesting. It intrigued me and I thought, what else could I do? Could I do something like in the public domain that would get the same reaction? So I wrapped a stop sign pole near my house. The reaction was wild. It was like people would park their cars and, and and get out of their cars and stare at it and take pictures of it and take pictures next to it and all of that was really exciting to me and I wanted to do every stop sign pole in the neighborhood. And the more that I did, the stronger the reaction. So at this point, I'm smitten. I'm hooked. This was all seductive. I found my new passion, and the urban environment was my playground. And I realized something. We all live in this fast-paced digital world, but we still crave and desire something that's relatable. I think we've all become desensitized by our overdeveloped cities that we live in and and billboards and and advertisements and giant parking lots, and we don't even complain about that stuff anymore. So when you stumble upon a stop sign pole that's wrapped in knitting and, and it seems so out of place and then it gradually, weirdly, you find a connection to it, that is the moment. That is the moment I love and that is the moment I love to share with others.
0: All right. So eventually you started to do bigger projects all over the world. And one of them is a statue of a guy holding a gun. Uh, Can you tell me about that one?
1: Yes, it is a statue of a soldier. And I went with cases and cases of material because my original intention was to cover the statue. But when I got there and I looked at the statue, stared at it for a solid 20 minutes, I realized that um, the significance, the meaning that I wanted to achieve would be from... The, the weapons, you know, the, the dagger and the gun that he was holding.
0: Yeah, he's like this sort of bronze statue, very sort of stern and,
1: and intimidating. Uh, intimidating.
0: And intimidating. And then he has this like yarn-covered pistol and a yarn-covered dagger and like these bright, like yarny colors.
1: Yeah, and it really struck a chord with me because there is something really significant in this simple gesture of – taking this material that represents nothing but love. I mean, I can't imagine it representing anything else. You know, you you knit for love. You Mm. you knit for someone that you care for and to put it on an object that only represents our instinct to kill or hatred. Mm. And to me, it felt very significant to cover this weapon and symbolically obliterate it and paralyze its function by covering it with love.
0: And and I mean, yarn bombing isn't isn't just yours anymore, right? I mean, people all over the world have picked this up, you, you people have covered tanks and the bull statue on Wall Street. And it's kind of like your work on that statue. I mean, it has a pretty powerful message, right? Because it's, I mean, it's a lot different than covering a stop sign or, or, or a bike rack with yarn.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's different meaning. Um, A lot of the times art is, you know, a response or has a social agenda to it. And it's it's quite successful. Yeah, we see this craft as something that's functional, that's domestic. We see it as a woman woman's work. And we're taking it out of all of those different boxes and putting it in this other world. And reshaping objects with it and um, re-identifying them and enhancing them and even shining a new light on them. And I think that people are intrigued by that. And if I can send a good message out, then that makes me so happy. As an artist, you hope that you can stimulate conversation and, and help community and help connection happen and dialogue with each other. And that's what I believe art can do.
0: That's textile artist Magda Sayeg. You can see her full talk and some of her work at TED.com. When can you remember a time when you played music for somebody and it it had a profound change on on what was going on around around them? It's hard
2: for me to remember a time when I played music when it didn't have that effect on people because that's the given. I consider music to be a transformational experience.
0: This is Benjamin Zander.
2: I'm the conductor of the Boston Philharmonic and the Boston Philharmonic Youth Orchestra.
0: Which, by the way, we're hearing right now with Benjamin conducting. So when Benjamin Zander says music is transformational, he doesn't necessarily mean it can change the world, but that it has the power to change us
2: from within. Mendelssohn said that music is a much more precise language than words. And when you think how easily we misunderstand words, and God knows there's enough evidence of that at this time, Yeah. but music speaks directly to the heart. It speaks through
0: the molecules, and it's irresistible. Benjamin described the moment when he discovered this power as a conductor from the TED stage. Now. I had an
2: amazing experience. I was 45 years old. I'd been conducting for 20 years. And I suddenly had a realization. The conductor of an orchestra doesn't make a sound. My picture appears on the front of the CD. (laughs) But the conductor doesn't make a sound. He depends for his power on his ability to make other people powerful. It was totally life-changing. People in my orchestra came up to me and said, Ben, what happened? That's what happened. I realized my job was to awaken possibility in other people. And of course, I wanted to know whether I was doing that. And you know how you find out? You look at their eyes. If their eyes are shining, you know you're doing it. If the eyes are not shining, you get to ask a question. And this is the question. Who am I being that my player's eyes are not shining? And you know, I have a definition of success. For me, it's very simple. It's not about wealth and fame and power. It's about how many shining eyes I have around me.
0: Walk me through your understanding of the physiological experience of, of music. What, is it, just, what, is it, what, what happens to us? Well, it's a fascinating
2: thing. It's based in nature. Now we're talking about tonal music. Atonal music is another matter. It says something else. But in tonal music, if I go da 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 da, da everybody feels in that last note a desire, which is in that note, to resolve itself to da. And if it doesn't, there's a frustration there's a sense of expectation not fulfilled. And so, since everybody feels that, the composer can play with the tonal language in such a way that he can set up expectation, satisfaction, a sense of coming home, a sense of being far removed from home, and all the emotions that human beings are capable of feeling can be represented in music.
0: So music is emotive, right? It, it draws you in and it can change the way you experience something. It's, so it's like why when you watch a movie, it can make you cry, right? But if you saw that same movie without the music, it wouldn't have the same effect. I mean, there, there's something emotive about music that pulls us in, that kind of preys on our emotions. And, and I don't know why. Do you, do you know why? Why? Well, just think of it the other way. Can you
2: imagine a movie without music? It's the music that generates the emotions, that releases the human experience. And it does it, of course, through the way that music works, which is, it doesn't go through the brain, it goes through the molecules. Shifts the molecules, it gives you whatever feeling and of course, the great composers uh, of film music know how to do that—to turn it on as if they're turning a tap or dials on a machine.
0: There is something about it that changes the experience of whether it's a movie you're watching or a moment you're experiencing. It, it can—it can make it so much more profound. I mean, music—it's like—it's like—it's like putting salt on a tomato. You know, it, it 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 awakens it, and it and it. It's even better than it's that. It's even better than that. It's a terrible analogy. It's much better than that. It, 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 it's but it just awakens things. It, it awakens the experience in a way that can actually lead to a consequential outcome. I, yeah. I mean, it, it can make people do things and change things and and build things. Yeah, no question
2: about it. It's the great bringer together of music, and it's one thing to hear it in your earphones alone. It's quite another thing to hear it in a concert hall with 2,000 other people who are all experiencing it together and whose reaction and spontaneous enthusiasm at the end is part of the experience. And on a tour, when you go from one town to another and you play for people, you have the sense that people come out of those concerts with a different feeling about life, with a different perspective, with a different sense of being. And that's why we do it. And we keep doing it and we keep doing it. And uh, as I approach my 80th birthday, I am have no intention of stopping at any point from doing it. Because it's my lifeblood that's where I get my joy and my life from. It's the sense that people's lives are really transformed.
0: So, Ben, on the TED stage, you play this piece by, by Chopin. But, uh, but first you ask everyone to, to do something, right? Yes,
2: yes. Yeah. Would you think of somebody who you adore, who's no longer there? A beloved grandmother, a lover, somebody in your life who you love with all your heart. Bring that person into your mind and you'll hear everything that Chopin
0: had to say. Why why did you choose that? piece by Chopin. What is it about that piece?
2: Well, thank you for asking. It's a very simple idea. It begins on a note and then it falls over the course of the piece from that note, which is the dominant, to the tonic at the end. And most pieces of music actually have that journey from away to home, from the dominant to the tonic. It does it in an extremely beautiful way, and it's emotionally amazingly satisfying. It's a masterpiece. And so in a very few moments, with a short explanation, you can actually reach everybody.
0: It's like a story, it's like an archetypal story. Uh, Exactly, music
2: is a story, it's an unfolding of a story. And it opens the emotional pause to all of life's experience. And that's the purpose of transformation. You may be wondering why I'm clapping. Well, I did this at a school in Boston with about 70, uh, 7th graders, 12-year-olds. And I did exactly what I did with you, and I told them and explained them the whole thing. And at the end, they went crazy, clapping. They were clapping. I was clapping. They were clapping. Finally, I said, why am I clapping? And one of these little kids said, because we were listening. (laughs) Tell you what happened to me. I was in Ireland during the troubles 10 years ago. And I was working with some Catholic and Protestant kids uh, on conflict resolution. And I did this with them. A Tr- risky thing to do, because they were street kids. And one of them came to me the next morning. And he said, you know, I've never listened to classical music in my life. But when you played that shopping piece... <laughs> he said, my brother was shot last year, and I didn't cry for him. But last night when you played that piece, he was the one I was thinking about. And I felt the tears streaming down my face. And you know, it felt really good to cry for my brother. So I made up my mind at that moment that classical music is for everybody.
0: Everybody. Benjamin Zander. You can see his entire talk at TED.com. Hey, thanks and for listening to the show this week. If you want to find out more about who is on it, go to ted.npr.org. And to see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sana Meshkinpour, Janae West, Eva Grant, Runda Abdel Casey Herman, Rachel Faulkner, and Ramteen Louie with help from Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Benjamin Klempe. NPR's Head of Programming is Anya Grunman. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. If you want to let us know what you think about the show, please go to Apple Podcasts and write a review. Also, you can write directly to us. That's tedradiohour at npr.org. And you can tweet us. It's at TedRadioHour. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the Ted Radio Hour from NPR.